Welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm week by week, arc by arc. My name is Matt Freeman, your host and friendly neighborhood mailman, and I'm joined as always by Scott Daly, who's just one fire axe reference away from going completely postal. Scott, how's everything going today? Things are good, Matt. Um, it's it's 5.30 in the morning on the 4th of July, but yeah, we are dedicated. It's 4.30 here. Oh, Jesus. I didn't even think about that. You have a different time than I do. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, but yes, as you stated, this is the podcast where you, a worm expert, guide me, first-time worm reader, through the superpower world of Wildbo's novel as I inspect, interpret, and yes, even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. This week... We're not doing a, a chapter. We're, we're doing another mailbag episode. We're answering questions. Yeah. That's right, Scott. Uh, and last time, we've got a wide array of questions, uh, ranging from general inquiries on the last arc uh, or so of the book, wider questions about Worm as a whole, uh, as well as general questions about the two of us. Absolutely. You guys, uh, you guys really came through for us this week and, and asked so many questions. We're so happy that we got, we got, I think we got significantly more than we got last time we did this, which is great. Um, we tried to pull as many of them as we can. Um, but there might be one or two that we just like, we had to, we had to have a cutoff at some point. So if you don't hear your question addressed here, we do really apologize. But, um, if we, this would have been the longest episode we've done, if we answered all of them, uh, which for us is saying something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, before we, we jump into your questions though, we had some really quick announcements for you first. Uh, we're finally ready to announce our first We've Got Worm uh, patron-supported fan art contest. Uh, so here's how this thing is going to work. Yeah, instead of just selecting any Worm-specific fan art, Scott and I thought it would be fun to define a theme for this thing. So uh, for this version of the contest, we have selected a theme of Fire Axe and Foamed. Yeah, that's right. Uh, all you have to do is create some Worm-related artwork that uses both of the elements of the theme, as long as you work in Fire Axe and foamed into your art, um, it works, and anything goes after that. So uh, get creative, uh, have some fun with it. Uh, we think this is going to be really fun. Yeah. So uh, submissions are now open uh, and go into the in, until the end of the month, closing on August first. Send your submissions to gotwormpod at gmail.com. Once the contest is closed, voting will begin. Uh, we'll set up a poll, and all patrons of Daily Planet Films will be eligible to vote. So if you want to participate, consider pledging a dollar a month. Yeah, uh, so we'll set up that poll, and then the artist with the most votes wins. But what do they win, you ask? I think that's the best part. Um, on top of a small cash prize that we're able to do, um, we're also going to uh, use some of the money that you guys have funded us to create a really nice print of the winning artist's work. Um, we're going to send that to everyone's favorite author, and Wildbo has generously agreed to uh, to sign the art for us, and then he'll ship it back to us, and then we'll ship it out to you, the winning artist, so you'll have a nice print of the work that you created um, with Wildbo's signature on it. So uh, we think that's really cool. We hope you guys are excited about that. Uh, thank you, Wildbo, for agreeing to do that. That's awesome. Um, and, and yeah, once again, submissions are open until the end of the month, so so get arting. I don't, yep. I'm not an artist, so I don't know how that works. I think that's the word. Uh, yeah, so uh, check out the link in the show notes for the full details of the contest. And if you want to participate in picking a winner, uh, consider checking out our Patreon, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. That's spelled D-A-L-Y. Yeah, and one other thing we've talked about, but I think we'd have to wait to see 
if the winning artist is okay with it first, um, was creating a second print of the winning artwork and then um, having a raffle amongst all the, the patrons that voted in the contest and uh, sending them a copy of the artwork as well. This one wouldn't be signed, but um, that is pending the artist being okay with that. <laughs> um, so so we'll, we'll talk about that more as we get through the contest. But um, yeah, either way, if you want to participate in this, uh, helping us out on Patreon would help uh, this contest. I mean, it helped this contest happen in the first place, um, which is which is awesome. Thank you all the the patrons who have helped out. But then also, um, uh, you can you can participate. So that'd be awesome. Yeah, uh, I think there'll be more fun the more the merrier. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, one more quick announcement, which is really more of a uh, just a reminder for you guys. Uh, as we stated last week, I'm out of the country for the next two weeks. Um, but we're still recording all these episodes in advance. Um, so th- unfortunately, this means, though, that we won't be able to respond to any of your comments or questions until after I get back because everything's been pre-recorded. So um, we've got two episodes coming in the next two weeks about ARC-15. Uh, one of those we've already recorded and the other we're doing uh, before the end of this week. So um, you guys, we, we still want you guys to submit questions on the Reddit, have discussions, talk about this kind of stuff. And Matt will be there to answer some of your stuff if he can. Um, but uh, but we won't resume normal uh, show programming until July 26th as when I'm back in town. So just a reminder on that. Yep. Yep. I, all right. Uh, I think I think we're good there, Scott. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, on the questions. So as with last time, uh, we've divided all the questions into separate categories. Uh, first up is a couple of questions related specifically uh, to last week's episode. Um, yeah, so uh, without further ado, from Rogthnor, uh, Rogthnor asks, I know you've mentioned how you'd like to shoot certain scenes, but how would you do the Gru and Tattletail meeting Taylor in the miasma scene? It would look, uh, it, uh, it would seem, sorry, it seems like it would be really hard to capture that paranoia. Yeah, I, we, we actually, uh, many people discussed this last week in the Reddit thread, um, but I, so it got me thinking about it a lot. And I think there are some things that, the honest truth is there are some things that you just can't shoot. <laughs> I mean, like there's some things that work only in the very specific media and this might be one of them. I think there are ways to get around it though. Um, I couldn't, I looked up the type, the type of shot it is. Um, but there's, I, it was used in the latest in Guy Ritchie's latest King Arthur movie, ironically, which might be the only time I reference that movie in any kind of positive <laughs> light. But um, basically, you attach a a camera mount on a person, and you have it like fixed on their face, so like it's close to their face when everything around them is moving by and and whirring by in kind of a weird way. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be one way of getting around it because that that kind of camera setup definitely grabs paranoia, and because it limits what you, the audience, can see as it's happening, um, it might get around uh, that kind of um, direct reveal that the person that Taylor's looking at are not uh, Brian and, and Lisa. But I don't know, because you'd still have to deal with voices, which you could do, like, you could have, like, a, a sound going over the whole thing, like Saving Private Ryan level of grenade blowing up or she can't hear as well. I don't know, it'd be really tough. Yeah, I think Guy Ritchie likes that type of shot. Um, you know, my my thought about this was that you, you, we already have the element of the protectorate capes wearing these bodysuits. Uh, so you, you, if you just tweak the story slightly, you could you could argue that that everyone has agreed to wear these bodysuits, 
and so and so Guru and Tattletail were, were wearing bodysuits, uh, you know, nondescript bodysuits, and, and maybe they even had voice modulators or something. So the two people she's talking to maybe literally are, are wearing bodysuits, and you can't you can't hear their voices, and 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 neither can Taylor. Although that doesn't fully make sense because then she would just be like, "Take off your masks." Although that would <laughs> that that also wouldn't help because she wouldn't recognize them regardless. Right, so I guess that's right. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the honest truth with stuff like this is that is that sometimes things just don't work. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, and true. I think the best adaptations um, manage to adapt the the heart and soul of the work without trying to stick exactly to the events and how they unfold. And I think that's kind of unfortunate in this case because I think this is such a powerful and important scene, um, but some things just don't quite work the same way. So I think there's ways you can get around it, but maybe you got to stop and ask yourself, um, are we just like confusing and complicating our film or TV show just to stick to the to the script of the book? Or can we just come up with a scenario that accomplishes the same thing that the scenario does, but in a more visual cinematic way? Um, yeah. and then that's that's the the challenge of adaptation and and good ones do that and bad ones uh don't yeah i would yeah i would say bad ones try to be too literal and this is a case where that might not be appropriate yeah i agree all right next question paper prayers on reddit asks do you think skitter forced the nine uh to leave the city prematurely thus potentially kicking off the end of the world yeah, I think this was in a larger discussion about um, whether Taylor forced Amy to use her powers, um, which then uh, Jack had said if Amy breaks her rules and uses her powers, then, then he would leave. Um, so is is Taylor at all responsible by forcing Amy to do this to cure her by kicking off events that lead to the end of the world? Um, my thought on this is that Jack was going to leave the city as soon as like the second he knew that him leaving the city was going to trigger the end of the world. Possibly um, he was going to do that and anything else was just fucking with people. So uh, his, his I'm going to leave Amy. If you break your rules was really just him fucking with Amy. Um, so no, I don't think that Skitter uh, f- forcing Amy to use her powers is it, it puts any responsibility for the world ending on her at all. I think narratively, it's kind of a good gotcha to to say that uh, that Taylor may have some culpability um, in in the whole situation there. But like, it's hard to lay any actual blame at her feet because she, this is one of the few times where I have no problem sort of being like, you know, she was in a pretty tight situation there. And she was kind <laughs> yeah. of doing her best. And I mean, if if that if that everyone in Brockton Bay would have died, like, yeah. so like. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I we look we 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 get on Taylor's back um, whenever she does something wrong. So the fact that I think we're both like, no, this wasn't her fault, I think is telling. Yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it was mostly Jack's fault. (laughs) I think Um, that's I think that's fair. Yeah. All right. All right. Next question uh, from Microburst. Uh, What do you think of Legend's power? uh, Sorry, Legend's power as metaphor for his involvement with Cauldron, the deeper slash faster in in people get the less they think about the details of what cauldron is doing such as legend being unaware unaware of battery's task until afterwards unaware of manton but he's holding himself back from taking the full plunge because he wants to retain his morality slash conscious mind yeah um there's not much to say in response to this question i just really liked this idea um and i don't even know if it's intentional or not but it 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 works really well um i like this a lot 
Oh yeah. So so the idea being, the idea being that his his brain turns off as he goes faster. Yeah, yeah. Which is sort of what he's doing with Cauldron. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like that comparison too. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh. Okay. That. So. So that was that was our uh, arc. Uh. Fourteen specific questions. So now now we have some uh, slaughterhouse nine arc specific questions. Um. Uh, which I guess constitutes several arcs worth of yeah, material. just like the overall any overall questions about the slaughterhouse nine and how that part of the story went. Um, yeah. Okay, so yeah, another question from Paper Prayers: uh, Who is more likely to survive a round of the nines testing, Matt or Scott? See, Matt, they're trying to pit us against us here, against each yeah. other here, and I don't appreciate it. Yeah, but, but, but it's Matt. Matt would definitely survive. I would. Yeah. I would definitely die. I, I, <laughs> Uh, I've already passed mannequins test several times over, so uh, <laughs> so that's that's the reasoning there, guys. And I'll just leave that hanging there, not explain what I mean. I think that's okay. perfect. Yeah. All right. Uh, Foxtail Lavender asks: Now that you live in a post Bonesaw world, what's your take on the character? I, I know that between the miasma and what she did to Brian, she's disturbed me in a way that little fiction can do. The idea of her stuck in my head to the point that were I the type to have nightmares, I have little doubt that she would have produced them. What sort of impact has she in particular and the rest of the nine in general left on your psyche? I mean, as far as uh, just my psyche specifically, I I have nightmares. <laughs> um, I've had Bonesaw specific dreams before. Um, I usually forget my dreams. Like I wake up and and remember them for 30 seconds and then they're gone from my brain. Kind of like I'm having a trigger event. Um, but uh, I, I know for a fact that I've had Bonesaw related dreams. I don't remember what the dream was, but I just remember thinking to myself as I woke up, oh, wow, that was a worm dream. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, she she's, has definitely had an effect on me. Um, I think ne like the effect that's more lasting on me is narratively um because i'm a nerd but just the the the, the level at which um wild Bo went with these guys to really drive home the point that these are like a representation of of how bad people getting powers could go um is is just so like impactful and telling and i think like what like we talked about last week i think this is very intentional in showing like what what is at the end of a potential path for people that that have these powers and i think you know the cool thing and I, i'm answering this question having already read uh, arc 15 for the most part i think i have one or two chapters left in my read but um we're seeing in there a shift to what happens with people with powers that try to do the right thing try to combat people like this and then maybe lose their way a little bit. So I think this is just, it just war, it just lines up really perfectly. Um, so that's, I think that's going to be the most lasting impression of the nine bones boss saw specifically is, is like wild Bo went super dark here. And, um, and I think that was very intentional and, and purpose. I don't think it was like dark and, and uh, disturbing just for the sake of it. I think it was doing a very important thing and that will, will last with me. Yeah, so I, I think uh, the Siberian is the is the is the character out of the nine that that is most terrifying to me and would be most liable to give me nightmares, basically because she's you know especially before you know that she's a projection, you basically see her as this unstoppable, implacable, animalistic like force that's just going to continue chasing you and and you know maiming you and and stuff and like that's exactly the kind of nightmare that I would have about something chasing me honestly so. Uh, that's that's a like just how 
how how undefeatable she seems for so much of the of the slaughterhouse nine arc is is gives you quite an impression i think yeah absolutely uh all right so another question from foxtail lavender uh with the s9 fiasco hopefully behind us do you have any thoughts uh you'd like to return to from the s9 interlude arcs any impressions that changed or were totally off in the beginning i'm thinking more about bitch and siberian's interaction and how manton being siberian colors that but i'm sure there's more ideas to delve into yeah foxtail i think your idea of of uh, the bitch and Siberian interaction and Manton coloring that is, is a good one. Um, I, I was expecting to see more interactions between the two of those characters than just the setup we got. Um, and I, I was, I was, I guess a little disappointed that we didn't get to, to explore that a little more outside of just bitch reacting to things. <laughs> Cause it's really just her hearing si- about Siberian and like reacting uh, physically to it. Um, and, and that brings me to another thing that when I was thinking about the slaughterhouse nine arc as a whole, that, that the, the, uh, contest, um, about the proposed members, um, seemed to get shelved rather quickly. Um, like we had this whole half of an arc that set up each member that was being nominated and that didn't go anywhere for a lot of them. Like, I mean, I think arms master is an example where, we got that big setup and then we didn't see him again. And I, and that's why I predicted that we would see him again because it just seemed like you'd want to bring that around full circle. And I was just surprised at how little at the end of the day in the fight with the nine, how little the actual uh, contestants outside of one or two of them mattered. Yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm rapidly going through my head and, and saying like, yeah, I mean, we've got, we got Theo who we, we haven't seen again. Um, but but there was definitely some setup that implies further involvement. Um, yeah, I mean that, that that's a good point. I think I, I think it's legitimate that you would have expected that the contest would be center stage when when actually it was like basically one round of the contest and then just completely off the rails. <laughs> yeah, and like the, we saw Hookwolf again, kind of, but we didn't. We weren't there with Hookwolf when the decision was made. We didn't see um, what he went through if anything um in this whole thing so yeah it was uh, that was just very surprising to me when i look back and think of like the setup of it as kind of like a game um and then and then how that actually came to fruition um, and i'm not saying i'm not saying what happened was bad um just that when i look at the arc and i think you know what surprised me about how things uh turned out um that yeah. that was a big one yeah for me as for the siberian thing um this isn't a spoiler because i genuinely don't remember the details of of how siberian works as a projection but for some reason like especially while reading it the first time i i had this impression that that uh siberian isn't just like a remote control puppet the way the way genesis's projections are like i had this impression that siberian is like a a thing that he creates but doesn't necessarily just control hand and glove i don't know if that's true or not he it, it may be the case that that manton does just control um the 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 projection um mm-hmm. so yeah i don't know why I, I believe that but that could also kind of explain why there's some um uh difference between between what you might expect from siberian and, and, and what you see i don't know do you did you get that sense at all or, or am i just kind of uh, yeah i i to me it was always that and i'm not sure if this was um explicit in the text or not but to me it was always that he was in control of it um at least in my 
perception of it. I, I don't, I, I don't think even, even the parts of uh, arc 15 I've read, I don't think we've got any, we've got more information on Manton himself, but I don't think we've got any kind of confirmation on um, that specific part of it. But okay. I think, I think your way would be maybe a little more interesting that if he was, if he was kind of as trapped as anyone else in this whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't glean any of that from the text. Okay. I'm, I'm just making things up then. Uh, okay, so uh, uh, another question. Ar- <clears throat> Arnix asks, Scott, in this last podcast, you mentioned having been worried about the unbeatable nature of the Siberian prior to the reveal made in this arc. Uh, this mirrors my own feelings when I read the books the first time, and it caught my notice, but I don't think you brought up these uh, concerns before. It got me wondering, what else are you concerned about for the future of the story? Is there anything else you're worried uh, can't be solved or tackled in a satisfying way? Are there any writing pitfalls you're worried Milkborn will fall into? Thanks. <laughs> these damn, these damn wildbone <laughs> different name spellings always throw me off. Um, yeah, like I, I can't say how happy I am that uh, Siberian was not just an invincible thing. I think that would have been so overpowered and boring, and that there's some kind of actual weakness behind it. I think that's smart writing, and it makes the character twenty times more interesting. Um, as far as what other pitfalls I think you can fall into. Um, my big thing, the big thing I'm worried about is the ending. And as we continue to escalate and ramp up stakes, the one of the big things is you, you lose focus on your characters and you lose focus on the personal stakes defined for each character in order to, to spread out to these global level stakes. Um, and that is a dangerous thing that a lot of people fall into as they're trying to make things bigger and, and more important and more powerful. And then they lose their way and kind of forget um, that this story is about a one person and one person's interaction with other people. So um, I have no evidence supporting that that could happen. Um, I, I don't think it will. But when I think about things, when I think about how how important the ending of a story is as far as uh, like the final turn of the story kind of reveals your central conceit and what you were trying to say with all this stuff. And if you lose focus on your characters as you round into that, then you can kind of like, if you don't stick the landing, you, you fall on your face and it taints the entire story. So um, that would be one of my concerns. Um, not, I'm not saying that that's going to happen here or not. I just, when I think about what am I concerned about in the story? Um, that's, that's a big one for sure. Yeah, I, I think I had some concerns about certain things uh, earlier in the story, my first read through, which which were then resolved to my satisfaction as being like intentional things. Um, uh, but I'm not going to go into that for obvious reasons. Yeah. One, one of my other big things um, is how these bought powers and how having powers given via a cauldron vial, um, how that ties into the central metaphor of powers as trauma and that kind of thing. And I, I still haven't seen exactly how that that's going to all tie together yet. So I feel like it, if, if it doesn't in a satisfying way, it could damage um, what feels like one of the central themes of the story to me. So I'm interested to see how, th- how that ends up tying together. Um, not saying it won't. Um, that's just something I worry about too, as I, as I wrestle with, well, how does this work with what he's saying about bullying and trauma? And um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's interesting. Next question. Green Door asks, uh, what do you think Cauldron is all about? How do they sell themselves to the Triumvirate? What is their real goal? Uh, And then uh, 
I'm just going to read all this at once. Uh, what is the Slaughterhouse Nine going to do now that they've suffered nearly two thirds of their original number in casualties? And then, uh, what do you think of the morality of kill orders? Is it justified for the government to be able to declare a person to be permissible to kill under any circumstances if they are as dangerous and vile as the Nine, even in desperate environments? In the Wormverse, is it really needed? How about carrying out the sentence? So if I was a politician, what I would do is answer your last question and ignore all the other ones or, <laughs> or pick the question I wanted to. Because whenever you ask someone multiple questions, you give them the ability to pick and choose which ones they want to answer. Um, no, I'll answer all these. Um, what is Cauldron all about? I think we it's, it's tough to answer this one um, without using the knowledge that I know now about the stuff we learned in ARC 15. Um, there's an Alexandria interlude in there that is very revealing. Um, uh, so, I mean, they, they definitely seem like at least, at least at the not, not highest level, they seem like they, uh, are generally trying to help people and protect the world and that kind of things. So, I mean, that's how you sell yourself to the triumvirate that you, um, you are, Let's get the most, I mean, and we know this explicitly, let's get the most powerful capes together and teaming up will help uh, protect the world and integrating us with the government will help uh, the government think that they have control, even though it's clearly ours um, and let us do what we need to do to protect everything, which uh, we'll get into a lot in our ARC 15 talks, because that ties into a lot of what Taylor's doing as well. Um, as far as what their real goal is, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's something there's something going on under all this. Um, and, and I, I can't, I can't speculate on it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It seems, it seems from, from arc 15 that they have a slightly different sales pitch for each of the triumvirate members. Um, and, and yeah, there is some arch hinting at their real goal, but, uh, but we don't, we don't really see that at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as what the slaughterhouse and nine are going to do, well, I know Jack's going to try, try to walk around, um, triggering the end of the world and he has very little knowledge in what he what actually happens his his only source of information is if i leave brockton bay i will be a catalyst in the end of the world so i think he's probably going to he might lay low for a bit but i think he's probably going to ramp up his uh gamesmanship because he's going to want to see like i think in, in the head of jack when he thinks about how could i end the world it's interacting with people and and fucking with them and screwing them up might trigger uh, someone to to make make a choice or take a step that leads to the end of the world. So I think he's gonna his his reign of terror is going to uh, ramp up. Um, probably not in Brockton Bay. He's probably gonna stay, stay away from there for a while. Um, but it, nothing good is gonna happen to this for sure. So I mean, our hero again, our heroes won. They quote unquote beat the Slaughterhouse Nine. But um, there's there's gonna be a lot of consequences towards everything that happened in this this arc. Sorry, I was muted. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and then I guess the uh, the last bit is is about kill orders, and um, I was actually just just trying to find someone's name on Reddit because I wanted to reference their posts, and uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to find it. Um, but but someone added us a lot of information um, about kind of the the idea of like a most wanted list, and and like how pragmatic it is to have such a thing. Uh, like, like for one thing, you know, obviously there's a lot of criminals at large, but the idea of like the the FBI's top ten most wanted list is to 
to boost the names and faces of specific people who, who, who the you know law enforcement really wants. Um, so like, th that was interesting because it got me thinking in, in a slightly different way that it's not just about the kill order per se. It's about it's about raising awareness of this person's face and the fact that they're a huge threat um, to to try to kind of prioritize them and and, and leverage the public as a tool. Uh, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that's a really good point. And and this is hard because in our world you can kill anyone with with a sniper rifle. Um like so I I think if if we talk about the morality of kill orders within the world of no superpower people, I think it it's completely different from the the world of of this book in which there are people with superpowers that even if you arrested someone and contained them, um, there's always a threat. And, and we got this a lot when we were talking about whether it's okay to, to just execute, a, a cherish who has turned herself in or, or not turned herself in, but has been caught and surrendered. Um, is it okay to execute her? Is she too big of a threat to keep? Um, and, and, and I think, this has been really hard for me because I am a type of person who's like staunchly anti-death penalty. I don't think killing people, I think there are very few situations in which killing people is the right thing to do. But yeah, I mean, Worm presents a situation in which uh, even if a person has been captured, even if you stick them in the birdcage, um, you're going to do a lot of, you're opening yourself up to a lot of risk, but just by their very existence. Um, so how much at risk is too much risk? Um, I, that's that's a tough question to answer, and I'm still I'm still personally battling with that. And I think that's one of the great things Worm does is that challenges your your preconceived notions on stuff. Especially me, who who I feel I have such a, a rigid, um, unflinching sense of of morality that I like to to proclaim to the world. But then you're thrown into real world situations, and you're like, wow, um, I don't I don't <laughs> I don't know what to do. Um, so that's I mean that's one of the things I really enjoy about the book. Yeah, I think we have another question in a couple of minutes. It's going to hit on that again. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because it's it's this really uh, difficult to re reason about area of, uh, of 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 things where it's it's kind of like the rules of engagement in combat where where it's all kind of arbitrary actually. It's it, but but, yeah. but necessary obviously. Okay. Uh, yeah, so so we're moving on now into general worm questions. So this one is actually from Wildpo, uh, and it's it's a several parter. So the it goes like this: uh, Where do you think uh, things stand with Taylor and her dad now? Where do you think they're going with Brian, with Rachel? Uh, what do you think of Imp on the team? You've had a chance to get to know her, got her interlude. Do you see her taking on any particular kind of role in the long term? And then uh, tonally, in terms of light and dark, we've seen some pretty horrible things now. Ryan in the freezer. Thoughts and feelings on this? Worm has been called grimdark by some, especially starting around this point with the S9 and all the entail. Yeah, so again, I think I think Wild Bo was cleverly uh, setting me up here <laughs> because um, Taylor's interaction with her father, Taylor's interaction with Brian, Taylor's interaction with Rachel, and even a little bit on the, the imp side of things are all things that are addressed pretty explicitly in ARC-15. And um, if things had gone the way uh, we hoped they would, I wouldn't know about all these ARC-15 things recording while answering this question. But unfortunately, I do. So I can't totally answer the question in i think the way webbo was hoping because i know 
I, I like I know in arc 15 she goes and visits her father and there's a, a kind of a, a scene of them trying to find a way back to normalcy that doesn't exactly work. Um, I know she has this big important moment with Brian. I know she has a big important moment with Rachel. Um, and I know we see Imp um, kind of starting to fall into her role on the team a little bit. And all this happens in arc 15. So he's, he's trying to, to see what I think is going to happen and then be able to to immediately find out if I'm right or wrong on this, unfortunately, um, because of my stupid honeymoon, uh, we, we didn't get to do this. But um, I, I wanted to, to touch on um, Brian a bit. And, and this the weird thing is, Matt and I have already recorded the first half of Arc 15. Like that podcast has been recorded, so I might be uh, doubling down on what I'm what I've already said. But uh, let's call this a preview of of that podcast. Um, I think their relationship is not going to work out, <laughs> um, and I'll say that as generously as I can. I just think there's too much there's too much history and there's too much trauma and there's too many things going on for them to have any semblance of like a normal relationship. So um, even though we see them kind of grow closer together, uh, which we'll talk about in next week's podcast, um, we, I just, I just don't see them getting out of that in any kind of normal way. Yeah. So, so as for the grimdark question, I always think that's interesting because one of the things that I think is amazing about this story is that we transition. So like seamlessly from being really shocked at the first death in this story many arcs ago and, and not really um, not really having the telegraphed sense that it's going to go to this place necessarily, and then going all the way from there to Bonesaw doing plastic surgery on people to make them look like members of the Nine and the Brian in the freezer thing and the glory girl being covered in acid thing. Um, mm-hmm. So so it's, it's, it's not so much like I don't really I don't really have a a position on like is worm grimdark um it's more like um i think worm very smoothly switches these tones in a way that never for me feels jarring yeah and i think to me grimdark is like um a thing that like revels in the nihilism of of the world kind of i mean when i think of it that's what i think of that like like gets down into the darkness like kind of anti uh lord of the rings because lord oh. of the rings was all uh people and and everyone comes together and defeat the bad guys yay um and so i think of grimdark as like um no like the world is shit um all these terrible things are happening so i don't think i think it's selling out where i'm a little bit to just throw that label on it because yes there are there are dark things that happen in this in the story um there are going to be some bad stuff that happens in the future i'm guessing like but i don't think i don't think it's fair to just say that that worm is like reveling in that kind of of nihilism um because like i think it, it accurately depicts these things as being uh terrible and and actually and and like having an effect on people but there's still there's still a sense of people striving um to make the best of the world and the situation they live in there's still attempts of of to to go tolkieny again of the light trying to beat back the darkness um and i don't think i don't think that that to me is grimdark but everyone has their 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 own definition so um that could be different from someone what someone else sees yeah, I guess it originally comes from the Warhammer 40K, uh, which in which even the good guys are like vicious re- religious zealots. So it's uh, it, it, yeah, <laughs> as you say, there actually are people who are, at least think they're trying to do good in this story. Right, right. 
Okay, uh, next question from Jason A. Uh, how do slash did you uh, approach the interludes? Do you just jump right into them and try to piece together whose head you're in? Do you look at the table of contents and sort of spoil it? And the second part is, do you think this affects the impact of the interludes at all? Do you think there is a right or wrong way to read these interludes? Um, I jump right in. So I normally do not know whose interlude I'm whose point of view I'm in until the, the story itself explicitly reveals this. Um, sometimes I accidentally like catch it as I'm like scrolling down the table of contents to get to the last place that I left off. Um, but for the most part, I jump in blind. Um, I don't think this ruins the interludes at all. I mean, there's there's some interludes that reveal who the character is right away. There's some that hold it back just a little bit. Um, like a few paragraphs in before you to use the fact that you don't know who it is like as a, a quick like uh, turn and or surprise. Um, but I don't I don't think that like doing it that way adds anything um, like I don't think that I'm getting to experience it that this way. And, and suddenly the interludes better because for three paragraphs I didn't know that this was Brian or I didn't know, you know, like I, I don't, I don't think that that does anything for me. I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do this at all. So, um, but I'm also a person who doesn't really think that spoilers are <laughs> overly important. Like I think you can still enjoy work, even though, even if you have been spoiled on what exactly happens, you can still see the art and the craft in there. So uh, maybe I'm not the best to, to answer this one. Yeah, I mean, I guess there are some that are definitely more fun if you don't know who it is. Like, you know, spoiler, spoilers, we saw Alexandria in, in Arc 15, but but we didn't know it was her for a long time. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but I don't but, yeah. think, I don't think the, uh, did the table of contents spoil that it was Alexandria? I don't remember. I, I don't, I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, okay, next question from Sammy R. Uh, and this is a question about um, the the phone uh, code that they that the undersiders use to identify themselves. Uh, and and Sammy R says, I, I feel like this could be uh, potentially set up uh, for some drama in the future. So I was wondering if you guys could shed some light on the process, how it works, and maybe how it could be manipulated in the future. Um. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, was I was trying to remember this, and I guess we should have gone into the text and and researched it again. I think. It's one person says a name of either them or one of the people talking, uh, the first letter of the their of their name, um, and then the other person has to say the last letter of the name. And since they're the only ones that know their identities in in theory, then they would know that it is, and that it's um, uh, an object that's a certain color being red, uh, yellow, or green, like a stoplight. Um, how much trouble are you in? That's what I think it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think. I mean that's that's basically the gist of it, and, and I mean I think this is a interesting question because because you could um if someone figured out this code um and they could because the undersiders seem to be fairly uh, accepting of of the code like I mean the only one who would really have a clue if they were being tricked uh, would be Tattletail I guess so like if somebody called Taylor and was like and then she <laughs> she would just be like okay yes i will do whatever it is that you're saying um which which i guess could be could be manipulated yeah yeah i mean in a world of of mind control and um of uh thinkers like relying on this code too much seems like it could be dangerous and i agree sammy that this is kind of set up for um some manipulation of the code creating drama and conflict in the future so um we haven't seen that happen yet but yeah it, it's definitely possible Okay, uh, next question from Jordan H. 
how do you think a fight between Leviathan and Godzilla would go? I'm not asking who you think would win, per se, uh, but I'm curious to hear your take on what uh, exchanges you think would happen. Well, I think it depends on which Godzilla you're talking about, because mm-hmm. <laughs> there's so many Godzilla movies, and Godzilla changes in size um, depending on what movie. I mean, Godzilla is massively bigger than Leviathan. Um, Leviathan's pretty big, but Godzilla is like taller than skyscrapers big um, and also has cool fiery laser breath. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, the, the honest answer is probably that it wouldn't be a very long fight because Leviathan has his water echo thing that just slices through stuff. And, and Godzilla, um, is not like impenetrable to stuff. Um, so I think, I think in this world, Leviathan is a, a power level above anything that we see like in, in monster movie type culture. Um, so I mean, I guess you could say that Leviathan is able, his skin is able to resist that kind of stuff. And that creates a bunch of interesting thing. But I think Leviathan's like built to be indestructible. And I think Godzilla has died like 70 times <laughs> in movies. <laughs> um, so it, it certainly seems like it would not be a very uh, prolonged fight. Yeah, I was thinking about this. And the, the other aspect about it is is that they, they mention and we see that he's that the Leviathan is faster than any speedster on record, which means he's pretty damn fast. Um, so that's something to, to yeah. factor in. And Godzilla is usually just as fast as a man uh, wearing a Godzilla costume. Yeah, exactly. Okay, next question uh, from Mugasoffer, which is a name that I've read many times but never pronounced. Uh, Scott, uh, how do you predict the plot of Worm will end? Where do you think Taylor's arc is going especially? To hell. Um, <laughs> no, I think how the plot's going to end. I mean, I I think there's going to be um we're we're going to continue to see things escalate and i do think it's going to zoom out to this uh world level stakes uh thing um we we've already got hints at like the world's going to come to an end um related to jack doing something and i think we're going to we're going to see this maybe not this specific plot thread but end of the world level events happening um and taylor having to be one of the people central to uh, either causing or preventing that. And I think we're going to see Taylor continue to make rationalizations and make choices that seem like they're doing, they're the right thing that seem like they're moving towards goals that are noble and good, um, but are going to be increasingly not that and increasingly um, hurting the people around her. I'm I'm really worried about the fact that Taylor's going to start making choices that um, hurt her friends, the people that we as as readers have kind of grown to love over the course of this book, because she thinks that she is right and and that her way is the right way, um, and she might not even stop to consider how it would affect the rest of the Undersiders, how it would affect her friends. Um, one of the things that surprised me about Arc Fifteen, which I know again this is something we've already read, but Taylor goes and visits her father and kind of finds out that he hasn't been getting enough food and he's had to like barter away uh things in his house to trade for food um and her her shock and surprise at that and i was surprised because taylor seems to care so much about her people and her territories um she hadn't 
once checked on her father and like sent supplies to her dad or any of that like that was very surprising to me um but i think that's just a a a representation of when she gets focused on on one specific goal how the people around her kind of fall to the wayside um and that uh, that is i think something that we're going to continue to see um and that's i think where taylor's going and i think you know any kind of story you have to have this this arc um the thing, the thing about character arcs, and maybe I'm taking too long on this question, Matt. I'm sorry, but <laughs> the thing about character arcs is that for, for the arc to be completed, the character does not necessarily have to um, like achieve like a good state. Like you can you can have the story end with Taylor um, Taylor arcing towards true just villainy and true becoming a monster. I don't think that's what the story's going to do. Um, because I, I would be disappointed because we've grown to care about this character so much, but that is definitely a possibility. But I think I think she's going to get to a point where she makes choices that really, really hurt the people she cares about, um, and she's going to have to deal with that. And if she's able to to deal with that and learn from it and become a better person from it, um, you tie that into her being able to stop the end of the world. Um, that would be that would be a nice little little tied together but um i I don't i don't know i think i think the cool thing is we're almost halfway through this book and i'm still not quite sure what the the central conflict of worm is going to be um and i think that's cool i think that the fact that i can't predict that uh increases my enjoyment of it cool i will refrain from speculating (laughs) all right uh, next question from proudly arrogant of the power categories, which do you find the most interesting and or desirable to have? Uh, for me, I think I'd want the thinker type category. I think being able to do cool stuff with your brain would be really appealing for me. Um, but I mean, I think that'll be fun. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, I definitely haven't thought about this uh, question for, for countless hours. <laughs> uh, um, but my answer would be mover. Um, because that would be really fun to do also. A lot of the categories, like, you don't really want to be, like, a blaster, because it's like, okay, well, I guess I can work for the military. Like, you never get get to use that power, so... Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um that and that's I think why like thinker could be something like I think Tattletail's power would be a lot of fun to have, honestly. Um because I'm the type of person that like gets a little little nugget of information in my real life and when I'm reading and like tries to build out exactly what's going to happen off of it. Um as you guys have seen, so I think that would be a lot of fun to ha- be able to have that power in real life. Yeah, I wonder if you would just like start reading a story and and just like know everything that happened. <laughs> Got it done. Yeah, moving yeah, on. Right. Uh, next question from Orankers: uh, What part of Worm do you enjoy most, i.e., world building, character development, prose, and why? So I am a character person. Um, it, I if a, if a story has a bad plot but good characters, I will find something to enjoy in it. Um, so I enjoy the character development most in this. I think Wild Boat takes a long time and a sufficient amount of time to fully explore each of his characters in a way that makes you care about them no, or are interested in them no matter how good, bad, uh, vile, and monstrous they are. Um, I, I think a really good example of that is Amy for me and her entire arc throughout this thing this is a character who was was kind of just always a side character in the story um but we we watched her go through this whole arc 
um and and we really cared about her as a character by the end um and and not, and not just in how she reflects on taylor like i think there's a lot of intentional intentionality in that but we also care about her as an individual as a person and i think that's that's remarkably done but he's He's also very good at world building. I enjoy those parts of it too. Um, his prose at times is just brilliant um, in both its efficiency and just the beauty of it. Um, but uh, to me, it's just a character development part. Yeah, I think the correct answer with Wildo Works is always the characters uh, as far as being the pinnacle. Um, but doing this project has also drawn my attention to how strong the plotting and, and the pacing are, because, you know, as we're consistently going through this, noticing how things are set up and knocked down uh, and, and move forward, um, that's, that's an element that I'm noticing now that I didn't quite notice before. Yeah, absolutely. A setup and payoff um, and how those are plotted out are so important to yeah. uh, audiences' engagement. Um, because if you're not setting it up properly, then people don't get it. But if you're too transparent with it, then uh, people just predict your entire book and get bored. So yeah. it, it's definitely a tightrope to walk on, and he manages to do it very well. Yeah, so good great. answer. Uh, so the next question, the coffee guru asks, uh, number one, Worm is often cited as an example of what would happen if superpowers developed in the real world. Given the constant downward spiral of the narrative, do you feel that this is an accurate commentary? And number two, uh, type your three-paragraph question, realize Scott would use it to Sherlock the entire plot. Deleted question, cried. I'm sorry, Coffee Guru. <laughs> I'm interested, once we finish this up, for you to come back and, and share what that question was, though. Yeah, thanks for your restraint. <laughs> um... The short answer to the first question is, do I think that this is an accurate commentary on what the world would look like if people suddenly had the ability to shoot lasers at people? Um, I, I try to be an optimist. I try to think that the world is, is generally good and has generally moved into more order out of the chaos and more goodness out of the badness. But we're at a time in our country and our world right now where it's very hard to say that. Um, so me being extra cynical right now says, yes, this is exactly what happened. People get superpowers, crazy people do crazy shit and have the power to hurt more people with it. And uh, good people, as much as they, they try, um, don't have the power to stop all of it. So yes, cynical, pessimistic Scott says, yeah, this is a pretty accurate commentary on what would happen uh, on earth if suddenly people had superpowers. So um, if you find me at a more optimistic time in my life, I might say, no, I think people are in general good and we'd find a way to work this into the order and uh, and social and political contracts that we all make as human beings and would find a way to work past it and still live a, a semblance of a normal life. But I, I don't know. I mean, there, there's also like the even worse outcome where it's kind of like an X-Men world where people are super prejudiced against the mutants and and maybe even try to kill them. Interestingly, in the X-Men world, people are prejudiced, but people never go on, like, uh, mutant pogroms, which is totally a thing that would happen. Like, like people would just, like, form mobs and try to kill parahumans. Yeah. But you don't see that happening. So yeah. I'm actually more pessimistic than you. I think, uh, I think it would be worse. I think people would just kill parahumans. Wow. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Happy July uh, yeah. 4th. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, next question from Nihil Supernum. 
uh, one of the central questions of Worm is, I think, is Taylor a hero, both moment to moment and in the grand scheme of things? My question is, is there a line that a hero cannot cross even if they have the right reasons? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we we kind of see it a lot um, in that, like it. You're, like the, the thing the thing with the 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 right reasons quote unquote is that they're always very personal to you like it, it, when you have someone with superpowers and we have a superhero you're basically propping them up and giving them almost implicit authority to be able to make those calls and how do how do you know like how do you at the individual having to decide what is I'm going to cross this line. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to kill this person. Um, it's for the right reason. Um, but that's for, that's for my perspective. What about the person I'm doing it to? What about that person's family? What about, um, the world at large and, and what that means to them? So, I mean, yeah, I think, I think there are, there are always lines that if you want to call yourself a good person, if you want to call yourself a hero that you cannot cross, um, no matter no matter what the justification is, and I think a lot of comic book stories um, deal with with that line and where it is and what to do if you cross it. Um, the thing that I I will say is I don't I I think there's very few instances where there's not an ability to come back to 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 cross that line and then realize it and then come back from that choice and suffer the consequences of course, but learn from it and become a better person from it. So, um, I don't think there's a point where like, like, I don't think if, if Taylor kills someone, for example, then she's forever crossed a line and is forever doomed. Um, I think it's going to have consequences and it's going to do things to her and it's going to matter, but it's still something that she could come back from. Yeah, I guess everyone has their own personal sense of of hero because I mean it, it's it's not a very well defined word really. Like we, we use hero uh, in all kinds of contexts. We'll call a yeah. firefighter a hero. We'll also call a soldier a hero. Um, we'll call someone a hero just for doing something brave, even if it doesn't necessarily like save a life. Um, so so uh, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure that socially we've agreed that certain people who are not very good people uh, are are heroes because they did some specific heroic thing. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't think I don't. Th- I don't think I have an answer so much as to say that um, people can disagree about this. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> uh, okay. Next question. Uh, it's actually more of a. Um, I mean, it is a question, but I, I think we, we singled this out because we both agreed that this was a great comment overall. So it's yeah. from Fawn Mod, um, and it goes like this. To build off your question, I'm curious uh, to know if you think the idea of a consequentialist hero is even possible. It's definitely contrary to Scott's idea of the ideal hero, Superman. Superman doesn't pull the lever in the trolley problem. He destroys the trolley and saves everyone. That is to say, most superhero fiction avoids the hard moral, moral choices to make the characters paragons of virtue, or if they are presented with difficult moral decisions, they pick what is transparently contrived to be right or just. Uh, they don't perform complicated, brutal moral calculations. Sometimes we can't pick what Jean-Luc Picard would do because we're faced with a real trolley problem and something objectively horrible happens no matter what uh, we do with the lever. Yeah, I, I love I love this. Um, it's so great. And, and I agree, like, 
there there is a reason that Superman is my ideal hero, um, and it's because of what I go to superhero uh, stories for normally, which is not which is not what we're doing with Worm. Um, so I think it, it it says something about the quality of this that this is a deconstruction of superhero mythos is not a thing I generally usually like. Um, like I don't I did not like Watchmen very much, um, which I know will surprise you, Matt, but. Um, so I I I turn to superheroes and I turn to these stories because exactly that because Superman can just destroy the trolley and because we live in this world where we are constantly battered with moral choices with choosing between two bad situations um, and and it, sometimes it's nice to be able to look up to a person who has the power to not have to make that choice, who has the power to say, no, I choose both of these things. I choose saving everyone. I choose doing this. And I can because I've been gifted this power to do it. Um, and I I just, I don't know, that's just inspiring to me. And I think it inspires me to uh, to attempt to always make the the right or just choice. Um, and I think that ties into specifically what would Jean-Luc Picard do? Because we got a lot of things saying, well, Jean-Luc Picard, like, couldn't deal with this situation. And I was like, yeah, that's true, but um, it can be a barometer for you. It can be, yeah. it can be a reminder of what, what would Jean-Luc do in this situation? What would Superman do in this situation? And sometimes, yeah, it's something that I can't physically do, but sometimes it's the small thing that matters. Like, there's, there's a comic book called uh, All-Star Superman, which is one of my favorite comic books. There's a moment in it where Superman literally just... Um, flies in and there's a girl standing on on the roof on a ledge um, about to commit suicide and he talks her down and he helps her and he listens to her and that's the kind of uh, everyday heroism that superheroes can do for you um, but is that realistic <laughs> is that is that uh, accurate to the real world and the choices we have no um, so can a consequentialist hero exist in the real world uh I guess it depends on how powerful they are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't, I think the Harry Potter and the methods of rationality um, story is somewhat popular in, in the circles that, um, that read worm. Um, so this may be a reference that is useful to people, but, but I think that that was an attempt at a consequentialist hero. The, the, the version of Harry in that story um, is uh, he, he talks about ethics a lot explicitly um, and and talks about consequentialism and, and I think he he tries to be a consequentialist hero and I think he um, falls short of his goal in some places and and I would even argue the way that story ends I'm like I'm like yeah I don't know I don't, I don't know if she succeeded in being a hero there hey um, but that, that that was a that was a really um, interesting take on on that I guess um, yeah yeah um, Scott are you familiar with those trolley problem memes. No, it's 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 just like pictures of the trolley problem, except there's always some twist. Like it's not just one person on the other track. It's like some precious thing or like instead of a track, instead of two tracks, there's like each track goes to two more tracks, which go to two more tracks or whatever. And like Jesus. My, my, my sense of worm is that it's not just a trolley problem. It's it's just a sequence of consecutive, complicated trolley problems with caveats and stuff yeah and i think that's reality too My, yeah, the most right. interesting take on the trolley problem for me is um if when you pull the lever the person that would get hit is the one that put the five people on the other track 
uh-huh. because that's like okay <laughs> you're like so not only would you save five people but that you'd punish the person who was responsible for putting them in danger in the first place so that that complicates it to a level where i'm like uh, oh no <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah all right uh so that was that was good that was a good one uh so next question uh from spectral walnut Pretty basic question. If you were in this setting, would you want to have a trigger event and get powers? Normal people in the Wormverse don't have much protection from the monsters in the setting, and they also don't have the trauma and potentially devastating mental health issues capes have. Is that trade-off worth it? Yeah, this is a great question. I I really like this because I sat down and thought about this for a long time. Um, Powerlessness in your world or power at a huge price. Um, and that's a great that's a great decision to make. Um, I would I would probably I would say no. I don't want the responsibility. I don't want the pressure. I don't want the trauma. I don't want all the the mental health things that come with that. Um, but then I it probably just means I'd just be killed by Leviathan like immediately. I mean we we don't have s- statistics, but certainly seems from the narrative like your life expectancy is actually higher if you're not a cape. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, um, um, and and also, you know, I would just want to be a, like a second or third generation cape and trigger while I'm playing basketball or something. Yeah, or like so. a or like a cauldron vial person yeah, that'd be good too. Right. Yeah, but I think I think this is very telling because I think superhero stories are so often escapist fantasy right. in that like like when I was a kid, I loved Spider Man because I fucking wanted to be Spider Man and right. like I wanted that and. Like the fact that I look at this and say, nah, pass, um, yeah. is like really telling. And I think it really gets into the realism of the story. Yeah, because all these characters are pretty miserable. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, think, I think I would actually say, no, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to have to deal with that. It's not worth it. I, I agree with you, actually. I, I, I thought about this for a while also. Okay, uh, next question from King Bob 12 uh, number one, general thoughts on each of the undersiders and how they've changed and how your perceptions of them have changed since the story has begun. Number two, general thoughts on the wider world of Worm and the thematic consistency and inconsistency we might see. Yeah, uh, so for the first one, um, my perceptions of the undersiders have changed a lot. Um, I think, you know, you buy into Rachel's um, animalistic and, and kind of uh, bitchy <laughs> Uh, nature at first you you i think you buy into that completely and i think having her named bitch uh helps you buy into that a little bit i think that's an, an intentional name to um trigger a certain set of emotions and and then the more you learn about the person the more complicated you see i think i think that's the big thing is that um we as human beings tend to make a lot of snap judgments on people and we do that in our stories too um we and and a good author can control that and and force a snap judgment on you because he knows you're going to make it so he can throw things at you that force you to do that um and i think that's what happens here because there was there was a lot of judging that i did um on these guys almost immediately like who they were and what they were and most of them have have turned out to be just way overly simplistic i think it's funny that like I made a judgment on Brian that his um, that he was lying about his trigger event, and that was a snap judgment based on what I thought of him as a person. Um, I don't know if at this point if I still fully believe that or not, um, just because of the things that I've learned about him a- a- as a person. Um, so I think I think that's that's commendable that these are complicated human beings and they are not just bad or good. They have 
little bits of each of them. Um, Brian being a type of person who seemed to only care about those directly around him suddenly on board for saving Dinah is a big deal. Um, and it's a big, important movement for his character. Um, so that's, I think the, the simplest way I can answer a very long question that I could probably talk about for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I almost feel like this is, this could take a whole, uh, a whole episode. We've, we've talked about this a lot. You know, we've got the whole Alec thing where you, you kind of think of him one way and then you realize that, that a lot of what he's putting forth is kind of a mask. Yeah. Um, but he's also kind of trying to be some approximation of good. Um, yeah, they're all, they're all really complicated. I think the only one that we haven't had some kind of dramatic reversal on actually would be Lisa, even though we have been in her head. Um, I mean, yes and no. I think I was, everyone gave me crap because I was constantly mistrusting of Lisa, um, from the beginning and there's still a level to that that I have, but I've even seen hints like when you started pointing out the fact that how out of her way she goes to always like be there for Taylor um, is like even in moments where she's not thinking about it, like where she just like throws herself to try to help Taylor um, is is really important. And I think that shows a thing going on beneath Lisa's uh, air that she puts up that is that is. Uh, really interesting, and I mm-hmm. we're gonna learn. I think what this is eventually, but I, I can't. I can't wait. Yeah. And as far as um, the second part of the question, uh, the, the thematic consistency and inconsistency. Uh, that's interestingly worded because, I mean, I think most most of what we've seen has pretty has been pretty on theme for our character. I mean, I think Taylor's a very complicated human being, so. Um, she behaves both consistently and inconsistently, but that's part of the theme. Um, I haven't seen any examples of real, like transparent thematic inconsistency of, of things that happen that seem to go against specifically what Wildbo is trying to do here. Have you met at, at this point? No, I mean, I think everything is consistent. Um, the, the closest thing to, the closest thing would be that like the tone changes so much that one might one might think that the theme has changed if if that makes sense like like yeah. you go from you go from kind of a uh, what what you think of as like a a young adult novel about a girl who gets superpowers and and has to learn the true meaning of friendship um to to the slaughterhouse nine arc but I think what's really happening there is, is if you thought if you thought that Worm was going to be about a, a teenager learning the meaning of friendship and nothing else, then you were just mistaken. Um, so I don't think that's inconsistency. I think that's just yeah. There's there's a complexity to the themes. Yeah, and I think I think this is a place where the length of the story really helps with that because it's not. You're right. The tones shift and 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 have changed, but I think it's not sudden. I think it, we we get so much time to build up to that. I mean, I think we had leviathan come in which is this huge escalation and and death and destruction followed it which which to me almost seemed like it was prepping us for the slaughterhouse nine to come because we've seen like countless people die um the city's in ruins and then it's like oh by the way here's these eight people that are the worst human beings you've ever seen (laughs) in your entire life um so i think i think the story sufficiently sets up and preps us for those tone changes to a point where they're not jarring or when they are jarring it's intentional we're 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 snapping back and forth through tones to specifically jar the reader Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think the only, the only, this touches on an answer I had before, but the only worry I have with inconsistent themes is just, again, me not seeing where having a created cauldron vile capes fits into the theme. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's fair to call that inconsistency more of, um, I just don't know how this is going to fit in yet. Um, and I'm sure it will, will follow in line with what, what everything's trying to do. So I'm not worried uh, per se about that, but, um, I, I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't be fair. I wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be fair at this point in the story to say that this is, this is inconsistent with the theme because we haven't seen its full reveal and its full purpose yet. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Next question from Peter Enigma. What POVs do you really want to see? Which characters do you feel you'd personally enjoy more information on? So my answer when we first got this question was Brian, um, because I realized he was the only undersider we had not seen a point of view from. Um, but we got that. So, uh, <laughs> um, my other answer was more members of the triumvirate. Uh, and then, and then I got that too. Um, <laughs> I, I would really like to see, um, God, I just forgot. I just forgot. You go first and I'll, I'll come up with one. Okay. Well, I was, I was going to pass on this one because I, you can pretend I can pretend that I don't know who we get a POV from. Um, you know what? I'm going to, uh, I would have liked to have a POV from crawler. We didn't get that. Though. Oh, that would be really interesting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I think one, uh, from Sundancer would be really good. Yeah. That's my answer. Sundancer. Um, okay. cause I, I really like, there's so much going on with the travelers that we don't know about. And we keep getting little, little like wild bows throwing out little tiny bits of hints for us. Um, that, that it slowly build to something else. Um, guys, I make a, I make a, uh, in the first part of Arc 15, I make a, a Traveler's Prediction, so look forward to that. Um, but I, I would love to see in her head and see how she feels and what's going on, and, and I think that would allow me to see the areas in which she's similar to Taylor and not. Um, so I, I, hope, I hope that happens. Okay, cool. Another question from Foxtail Lavender. Um, to tack on a more specific question, what unpowered character would you most want to get an interlude or what sort of unpowered character? Uh, for example, a PRT trooper, a cop, the mayor, etc. Um, for me, government or military. Um, I want to see what a person in the government thinks about all the stuff that's happening. I want to see what, what, what the military, does the military exist? What do they do? Where are they? Because um, we still haven't really seen any kind of actual military force in this world. Um, so I think that would be the one part of the, the world that I haven't wrapped my head around yet. Um, so that's what I would want to see. Cool. Yeah, I'm going to pass on that one. Uh, Frustrated Free Boda asks, uh, who is your favorite interlude character so far? Um, and uh, who would you want to see from again? Uh, I think my favorite so far is Legend. And this is not, uh, I don't think this is recency bias, <laughs> but um, I really loved Legend's character. I really love, Legend is, is, is very much seeming to play in the classic hero myth and, and, and hero tropes um, that I love in, in Superman so much. So uh, he's very interesting to me and, and, and seeing how he's going to struggle with the things that he learns and the things that he does uh, is really, really interesting. Um, of course, I also love the, the Brutus one. I think everyone loves that one. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I love the Brutus one. I know everyone thinks there's something wrong with me, but the Alec interlude is still probably one of my favorite chapters in the whole work. It's it's fantastically well written. Yeah, um, yeah. All right, 
uh, from Ruben T. Uh, if the Undersiders had theme songs, what songs would they be? <laughs> uh, Matt, you go first. I want to yeah, hear you know, what you have to say. Uh, you know what? I, I saw this question and, and my plot was basically like, you know, if, if I was if I was funnier and I had a broader knowledge of, of music, then I'm, I'm sure this would be an opportunity to shine. Uh, but I am I'm neither of those things. Uh, so um, not I, I, I'm just I think I think if anything, I wanted to read that one so people could think about it on their own. I, I don't really have any answers. Yeah, yeah. those of you that are musically inclined, I would love to hear because all this would be for me is like a Googling like songs with insects in them (laughs) and then and you put stuff like that um yeah i am not as musically inclined as a lot of people i like listening to music um but i don't it doesn't go much beyond listening like i don't i don't inspect and interpret music the way i do a story um unless it's a musical unless it's hamilton and then i listen to it five thousand times yeah it's it's uh, i just saw baby driver so so i was thinking about (laughs) like you know i'm not i'm not really like edgar wright where i'm gonna like pick the perfect song out of all of the universe for each given moment. Um, that's, that's not me. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, um, green door asks, uh, besides the undersiders, whose death would emotionally affect you the most, uh, would said emotional reaction significantly change if said character died ignominiously or heroically. Uh, and then as an opposite of the last question, is there any fleshed out character you just don't care about? whose death wouldn't really affect you either hate or love. And uh, then finally a question for Matt so far without spoilers, which moment of Scott not knowing things ahead of time has been the funniest for you? I bet this was your favorite question, Matt. (laughs) Um, Whose death would emotionally affect me the most? Um, I think, I think Dinah, if Dinah died, would pretty emotionally affect me. Just, And I think that's something we've been set up for by the stories explicitly because so much of everything Taylor has done has hinged on that. I think if Taylor's father had died, um, that would really have messed me up. There there really was a moment when she's chasing uh, after him when Shatterbird's about to do her thing that I was like, oh God, Wildbo's going to kill this guy. And it would have just destroyed me. Um, and and I, think, I think the answer to would the emotional reaction change if the the character died heroically or not um yeah i mean definitely if there's a character that um like i think I, when i thought amy was going to die i was hoping i was hoping that she would die in a heroic fashion to kind of sort of redeem herself at the end of things so i think that definitely would change things absolutely mm-hmm. um is there a character that i don't care about um besides besides hook wolf who i've already said who's gone from the story and who knows when he'll be back um let's see i don't know i like i I care about all the characters in one manner or another whether it's i hate them to death or i'm i'm really into them Um, yeah i mean even the ones who you're like annoyed with you you care about on some level right and it's like like I, i i thought about do i is there any of the wards that i don't care about I was like, no, because we had all that time with them, and I like each and every one of them and the struggles they're going through. Um, everyone in in the Travelers is really interesting to me, and I really like all them. Um, it, I, I felt nothing when the merchants died, yeah, <laughs> like nothing at all, um, because they were just like scummy people. I'm like, okay, well, good for you. Yeah. You're dead now. Uh, yeah, but they I weren't really even, flushed out though. Yeah, I think even somebody like Pigo, who you're who you're biased against like you still wouldn't want to see her die so. yeah no yeah. yeah um 
Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's that's an interesting one. I, I think I think Wild Bill is just too good about making us like characters. Why don't you answer so, your part of the question, Matt? Yeah. I know you're itching um, too. Uh. Well. So. So I'm. I'm not usually just sitting here laughing at Scott's ignorance. Um. Because that would be ridiculous. Because I I read a story that he didn't read. Liar. And, Liar. Um. Yeah. I I have to mute my mic a lot to to. Uh, but uh, the most entertaining secret to date was was Regent's true power. Um, it was really hard not to draw too much attention to Alec during all of the all of the episodes prior to that reveal, and and that was just one of the reveals that I was just giddy about getting to eventually. So th- there's there's a number of things, some of which have come to pass, some of which haven't, that I'm I'm just consistently excited about, or, or have been consistently excited about getting to the point of that reveal. Um, and that was one of the ones where I was just like, um, almost, uh, couldn't, couldn't control myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good answer. I, and that, that was one of those reveals that I just did not see coming at all. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and I, I, it's one of these things that were, I don't even know if I'm going to have time, but going back and rereading after this would be a lot of fun to see mm-hmm. if there was setup that I just missed. I mean, there's, there's hints towards it. We talk about his secret weapon and stuff and, and the fact that his, power works on nerves you think that you could extrapolate that out yeah but uh that it was a good one yeah okay uh from matt p scott what would your estimate be for the amount of time that has passed in the story oh boy see i think i think it's a lot less time than we think Mm because i know i know taylor triggers in january um and i think the story starts around april i think um and the thing that surprised me is the the events of the slaughterhouse nine were a week, like it's right. like a week, like right. seven days. Um, and it seems like so much longer than that. And, and to have to do all that stuff over the, the, the span of that short of a time is crazy. So I think maybe like a couple months tops from the start of the story to where we are now, um, which seems crazy in the, the amount of power and the amount of shift that's happened in the city and in Taylor in that short of time. But yeah, I think it's, it's, maybe probably a couple months yeah i I think i was thinking like it it feels feels to me like it's been like five months but i bet if you counted it up it would it would be less time than that um yeah i mean yeah they're they're like like what's happening right now in the story where we are they're they're like talking about this very tight timetable of like a week a week and a half where they have to do all this complicated stuff um so yeah there's definitely um i almost feel like uh since the slaughterhouse nine arc we've been uh, you know, the narrative has been paying more attention to time. Um, and so we're more aware of it. But prior to that, I don't think we, you know, we could probably go through and count it out, but that would be difficult. Yeah, and I think it, it kind of ties into uh, the escapist nature of this for Taylor that we don't pay as much attention to time because she's seeing this as a, a way to run away from her problem. So why do I need to be reminded of what day it is? I don't care. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to school. Who cares? Yeah. 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 And then another question from uh, Mord in a mail. Uh, hey, who's asked, that? Asked via right now on the podcast. <laughs> um, uh, that guy wants you to speculate on Noel's situation and power using your normal thematic toolkit that always ends up being uncannily useful. Okay. Um, I should have prepped for this question more because you told me you were going to do it, and then I didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, so I have to think. Um, okay. which makes for just great podcasts when you're just yeah. listening to a man think. Yeah. Um, I, Noelle is, is very interesting to me. And, and I, I guessed a little bit on what 
happened to her. Um, when I look at when I look at Noel and when I look at the Travelers, it, to me it seems like a way of showing a, a foil to the Undersiders, and and because their team structure is very um, like fragmented and and like they're they're falling apart basically they're all friends but they're falling apart um from the pressures of everything that's happened to them and and we learn a little in arc 15 about um who blames who for stuff and who's responsible quote unquote for stuff um but to me it seems like noel could work as a uh, as a uh tailor being put in charge foil um and what happens to a person who um is in charge of a team when terrible things start to happen around them and um what what could what could taylor turn into um and and how noel reflects that but this is one of those things it's one of like that i've been like reading and rereading um anytime they talk about these guys trying to glean information from them and it's been very very cleverly hidden um so i i i can't i mean i speculated in in the episode everyone's going to hear next week um i have no clue whether that's right or wrong but i think noel fits into this idea of um uh, looking this is what can happen to the undersiders this is what can happen um when you're when you're put in charge of this group uh, and things start to go bad and and the choices you have to make and the decisions you have to make for your team as a whole and what they do to you and what they do to the team um so that's all i got yeah, that's really interesting. This this idea that they're they're talking in, in Art Fifteen, they're talking about making Taylor the team leader, and yeah. uh, this this almost is like a cautionary tale about uh, about uh, maybe how that could go. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So, and then we have some questions that are more um, about us. So the first is from Liverpool. Uh, the question is. I know that there's usually a lot of uh, a lot behind the scenes that goes on in podcasts that audiences never get to see. So I'm kind of curious how much time and effort goes into preparation on top of Scott having to read the arc, I suppose, uh, and post-production. Um, do you edit or trim the podcast at all afterward, uh, or do you more or less do a single take? Thanks. Um, I guess I'll go first because sure. I usually like like my part comes first um, in terms of what, what we're doing. So like what, while Scott is reading it, uh, for the first time, I'm usually uh, also listening to it uh, all the way through on um, on the Worm audiobook, and, and and I try not to read ahead because I don't like it's hard enough for me to keep the spoilers straight without having to be like, okay, well, how far did I read, and did Scott read that far? So I, I listen to whatever arc we're going to be discussing uh, using the Worm audiobook, uh, and then I spend between th- probably like three to four hours going through the arc. Uh, with one window open to the story and one window open to the Google Doc, and I just hammer out the synopsis. Um, and this takes a long time because, I mean, first of all, I'm not only rereading a pretty long section in, in some cases, um, but I'm also having to constantly reflect on what to include, what not to include, how to word things, you know, how much to condense certain things versus explicate them. Um, and also, of course, thinking about whether I'm subtly spoiling something in, in how I'm choosing to portray something. Um, and then once I've done that, um, I, I, I pass the ball to Scott. Yeah. So I, um, I read it once straight through just like a normal person. And then, um, and then once Matt's finished his synopsis and it's usually, this is, this is almost happening concurrently, um, because Matt will be working 
down further in the document while I'm at the top of the document on the parts that he's already gone through the synopsis. And I have uh, the, the, the story open in one window, um, Matt's synopsis open in the other, and I'm rereading it and pulling out my notes. And then I see how he phrases stuff and what he's going to bring up. And I structure the comments that I want to say based on how he, he structures it and how he does it. Um, and then there are times when he didn't pull, he pulled out stuff. He, he did not pull out stuff that I want to talk about. So then I'll just grab a, a section from, um, from the book, a, a direct quote that I wanted to talk about and throw that in. And that's kind of, uh, a, a mark to Matt. It's like, Hey Matt, I want to talk about this too. Um, and and then we'll go through that, and then I'll I'll go through as he finishes, um, and then we'll write the intro and the the outro um, and all that stuff. Um, so the document is normally um, by the time we're done, twenty two pages is our average. Um, tw- if it's twenty pages, it's going to be a two hour episode. It's going to be under two hours. It's going to be perfect. If it's anything over that, we're going to go towards two hours and fifteen minutes. That's what we've we've noticed. And I think our worst was like twenty eight pages, and that's the episode we went on uh, for over two and a half hours on. Um, so we we're really trying to limit this. We've got a pretty good handle on how long the document is versus how long we're going to talk. But also we do this thing where um, we just randomly throw audibles. And if we think of something in the moment that we did not write down, we just start talking about it. And that's, that tends to go off and, and lengthen the episode a lot. Yeah. And I mean, that's necessary because this, I mean, I think this product would not be as good if we weren't riffing somewhat on on, on air. Like if, if we were just reading the script, it, it wouldn't quite be uh, the, the audio experience that you're enjoying. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it's funny because when I write my responses to you, I write them as if I'm writing an essay. Um, and then I, I try to not read them directly back to you. There's some moments where I'm like, I worded that really well. I want to say it exactly like I did it. But there are times when I just use that as kind of like a guide to know yeah. what I'm going to talk about and to to measure the points I want to make sure I hit. Yeah, I, I tend to do both. I mean, some of you have access to the scripts. And in, in some cases, I'm reading the script. In some cases, I'm using the script uh, as bullet points, more or less. Yeah. And then so we take that script and then we start recording and uh, we both got we both have the Google Doc open while we're recording and I am keeping track of time. And every so often I will put how much time is left for Matt to see in big letters on the screen so he knows how we're doing. And then Um, I will freak out while talking. (laughs) Yeah. If you ever see Matt stumble mid sentence, it's just because I said, Matt, we're running out of time. Um, So we, we try like. This is all pre-recorded, so um, we try to treat it like it's a live show. So we don't we don't like to stop in the middle of it and say, "Oh, we got to do that again," or um, "Hey, we're running out of time." We try not to do those things, but they happen. Like there are times when there are times when Matt and I have slipped over a sentence so much that we just have to stop and be like, "Okay, we got to do that again." So yeah. I think as far as editing goes, um, most most editing is very minor. Um, there are spots where we have to stop in the middle, um, where like a sound goes off in the background for one of us that we have to edit around. Um, this podcast we're recording right now, we had to stop 15 minutes in because my recording device's batteries died. So, um, there's not a lot of editing. I try to do very minimal. What you're getting is basically, uh, what we do. So I, I, I don't, I don't think I've ever edited out a section like, like said, I don't think I've ever listened to it and said, hey, this isn't good. I'm just going to completely rip this part of the story out, which is I mean, it's hard to do that in general, because when you're going through a synopsis, like people are going to be like, why didn't you talk about this whole part? Um, But uh, so, yeah, I I try to keep editing down. It usually takes me 
uh, 30 minutes to an hour to edit the whole thing together. Um, and then it takes about half an hour for it to run. And then we upload it. Um, I usually, depending on how late, like we record on a Tuesday night normally um, at around 930 uh, central time. So we finish around midnight. And then if I'm tired, I'll go to bed and edit in the morning. And then you'll get a podcast at about 10 a.m. If I'm not tired, I'll edit that night uh, and have everything set up and it'll drop around 8, 830 in the morning on uh on that wednesday so um i i like that we do it in kind of a single take i like that format we could more heavily produce and edit the show but i don't think it would sound as natural so um i i'm, I'm pretty happy with the way things go yeah and i wanted to say that scott's really good at the editing because i'm i'm on i'm i'm participating in this and very often i'll, I'll listen to the finished product and be like wow i absolutely could not have like I, I know that I know that we had to take a break at about this point in the recording, but I could not have I couldn't tell you where that break was by listening to the podcast. Um, so he's 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 good. He's good at what he does. Well, thanks, man. Um, I use GarageBand for editing, which is terrible, but it's what I know. So um, I I would like to use Audacity. I'd like if I had the money to get into the to the Adobe products and use those because they have so much more t- that they can do. Um, but Right now, for speed's sake, I know GarageBand, and I can set filters and do things in GarageBand, um, so that's what I use. I'm not, I don't proclaim to be the best at uh, sound engineering. It, it's not my background at all, so there are, I'm sure a sound engineer could come in and make us sound better using all the tools that those uh, pieces of software have, but I think it works for now. I think we sound uh, good enough, so. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, going, and- I'm going to learn all these things eventually, but... Um, it, yeah. And if you disagree that we don't sound good enough, uh, daily, uh, uh patreon.com slash daily plan is where you want to go. <laughs> there you go. That was good. I like that. Yeah. Uh, and then the final question today from Kifru, uh, what kind of books have y'all slash do y'all read? Uh, the only one that I can recall is Matt reading blind sight. Um, sounds like you like high sci-fi, the moat in God's eye by Larry Niven is always my go-to for a pretty rational first contact. Um, you want to go first? So, so, so this this question took a disproportionate amount of my time, and, and then I ended <laughs> up I ended up going through my like Goodreads list, and and then just kind of being like, there's too much here um, for me to even like go into, and, and and so I ended up with just kind of a list of things that were either like big influences for me at different times, or, or things that that just like sprung to mind as things that I liked. Uh, but yeah, like I, I'm I'm a big fan of Peter Watts, who wrote Blind Sight. Um, I think Blindside is kind of transcendental, and and then his other books are are, are good, but not nearly as good as Blindside. Um, I I have read literally everything by Neil Stevenson, and and I love Neil Stevenson. I have a signed copy of Seven Eves from my brother sitting right over there. Um, uh, some some Werner Vinge, I think that's how you say that. I, I like Stephen Baxter. Um, when I was younger, I was really into James Clavell's Asian Saga, which I think most people aren't familiar with, but if you're, if you know, Shogun, um, that's, that's part of that, uh, sequence of books. Um, I could, I could go like on and on, but, um, that's, that's a kind of a good, like cross section. Um, Scott, do you have a, an answer to this one? Yeah. Um, my tastes are very varied. Um, I, I'm not into the, I'm not as into the high sci-fi type stuff as Matt is. I read Blind Sight. I liked it. Um, I didn't I didn't love it like Matt did. Sorry, Matt. Um, <laughs> but uh, my 
so what I'm doing right now, I guess is a good way to answer this question is my dad, 20 years ago, when he was going through his midlife crisis, he bought a book from Barnes and Noble, um, the 100 best books of all time. And he said, I'm going to read all of these books. So that's, that's what my midlife crisis is going to be. So a few months ago, I took that from my dad and have started working my way down at myself because I realized how many classics I just have not read. Um, so the first book on the list is the Aeneid. So I finished that up. Um, I can't remember what's number two now, but, um, I also really like, I really like Stephen King. I know it's not like high literature or whatever, but, um, Stephen King is, is great. It's so much fun to read. Um, his dark tower series is probably one of my favorite book series of all time. Um, I love it so much. I even love when it gets weird and meta and, and he kind of goes crazy, uh, at ne- near the end of the story with, uh, he, Stephen King puts himself in the book. I should say that, um, he's, <laughs> and he's the only author that can get away with doing that. Um, because it works, it works so well and it works as a way of like understanding the mental state he was going through because he, he always wanted to make this, this magnum opus, uh, fantasy series and he wrote four books and then stopped for a long time. Uh, he, then he almost died when he was hit by a car and like used it as a way to like uh, reconsider his life and picked up Dark Tower again. And him him writing himself into the book is a way of like him considering his legacy and who he is as a person. And it's just it's just brilliant. Um, and there's going to be a movie about it, which will probably be bad, but um, <laughs> maybe it'll be good. I don't know. I like the cast. But uh, yeah, so I, I think that's what I'm reading right now. And then I read a lot of nonfiction, too. I read a lot of uh, film criticism and, and film theory type books because that's what I get nerdy in. But yeah, yeah I, I read a lot of nonfiction, too, but nobody wants to hear about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, so, Scott, I think, uh, unfortunately, that's all the questions that we have time for this week. Um, yeah, uh, we, we really appreciate all your, your, your comments and questions and discussions and so forth. Um, and although we won't be able to read or discuss, uh, any of them for the upcoming couple of weeks, please feel free to share them anyway. And, and, you know, maybe we'll find a way to get around to them. Yeah. And like we said, Matt will be, Matt will be in the Reddit. So he'll, I won't be in the Reddit. So if you ask me questions and I'm ignoring you, it's not because I don't like you. It's because I'm in Norway. Um, but, uh, Matt will be there and if he can answer and, and, and help out, uh, I'm sure he will. Right. Yeah. But you can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85. That's D-A-L-Y. And Matt's is at mail. Yeah, uh, and if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Worm, we strongly recommend that you do so and never miss an episode. You can, of course, find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world that you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. We also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms, again, D-A-L-Y. If you like what we do here and want to help make sure we keep doing more, Consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Special thanks to new producer Darkglass57. Thank you so much for your support. It really means a tremendous amount to us. Um, also, while you're over at Patreon, make sure to stop by Wildo's page and toss some money there because he's the guy that makes this whole thing possible. Yeah, and if you want to participate in the voting for the, the fan art contest, um, 
become a patron and then you can do it. Um, yeah. and, and I guess, yeah, a reminder to, to, to start working on your art guys and send that in. Um, but, but as always, if you're one of those that can't spare any extra cash, we do completely understand. There's still tons of ways to help us out. We get so many great emails this week. So how about you send an email to all your friends and family telling them about we've got worm. I'm sure your mom would love to hear from you, even if it's just so you could shamelessly plug our podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're on iTunes, if you could take a second to rate and review us, that would really help us reach a wider audience. This week's spotlight review comes from Will Scasso, uh, yeah. who gave us a five-star review and says, listen to this if you enjoy hearing some guy saying, Matt, I love this at least once every episode. Will, don't appreciate your sarcasm, but I appreciate your review. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, and Matt, I love this. <laughs> don't we all? Uh, that's all for us this week. Tune in next Wednesday for our coverage of the first part of Arc 15 Colony, uh, which will go through Arc, uh, go from Arc 15.1 uh, through 15.5, including two interludes. Um, and we will see you all next week when we get into Arc 15. <laughs>